Well, I can almost guarantee that you are not surprised to see me here right now, but I am surprised to see you. And the reason is, is because up until yesterday afternoon, I was not supposed to be preaching today. And now I am, so hi. <laughs> Welcome. It's been an interesting uh, weekend. And uh, that's just the way it works. Sickness and illness has uh, taken out our regularly scheduled uh, preacher today. And so I'm here. And what's ironic is that I cannot preach a message like I did last week about God's timing and how he works out things that look confusing and wrong to us and then complain about this. So I'm not going to do it. But I am going to say by way of explanation, that is why, for instance, we don't have a translation for those of you who normally follow along with that. It's why we don't have a super fancy PowerPoint today. We just got me, just me and God's word, and I'm going to trust that that's enough. Um, and so thankfully, very thankfully, I've been able to uh, draw from a previous message that uh, speaks to exactly what we needed to talk about today. So if you were here three years ago, uh, when we went through a series called Isaiah's Jesus, uh, this will sound familiar. If not, this can be brand new. Welcome. Um, but that's what we're going to hit today as we talk about uh, this next uh, section in this series in the fullness of time, talking about Jesus born of a woman. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to, first of all, Galatians chapter 4. This is the home base passage that we're working out of. Christmas according to Galatians, and when you found that, would you stand with me? We're going to look at two passages today, our home-based passage, and then we'll jump to Hebrews chapter 2. So first of all, Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4, we'll read that together. Stand with me if you are able when you found that. So Paul says this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons, and because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. There the author of Hebrews says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil." And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's uh, blessing on this time in his word, and then we'll dig in together. Spirit of God, we praise you for your word. It is incredible. It is a bottomless blessing that we can continue to dig and mine and discover new things each time we encounter it. And so I pray that that's something we would do this morning. Um, that you would accomplish what it is you planned already to accomplish this morning. Uh, your plans uh, oftentimes look wrong to us. Your timing looks uh, strange, and yet we trust that you are going to accomplish exactly what you plan to do this morning through this entire service, as well as this time in your word. So I pray that you would do it. Uh, God, uh, open our hearts, open our ears and our minds to receive what it is you want to show us, and then help us to 
to trust you and believe it and do what it is you show us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, it is just simply that time of year again. Not just the decorations, but it's the time where inevitably over the next few weeks and really pretty much for the past month already, in newsstands and grocery stores all around North America, you will see at least one publication, uh, Time Magazine, McLean's, Newsweek, something is going to have a cover story about Jesus. Be Jesus on the cover, there'll be some painting of Jesus, either as a baby or as a grown man, usually pretty much, I mean, look at even the pictures in these videos, pretty much every one of them is going to be some uh, white European looking Jesus surrounded by uh, white men with beards, I don't understand it, but that's just most of the paintings we have, it's strange, all white Jesuses, but you're going to see these paintings on the cover and then there'll be some sort of captivating caption saying something like, uh, uh, looking for the historical Jesus, uh, Jesus, Messiah, or myth, or whatever, something like this. But whatever they come up with each year, the point is, and what's great is that even 2,000 years later, people are still asking the question about who this Jesus is. They're still saying, well, who is this? He still has an impact in our world today, even 2,000 years later. Now, although that's great, uh, uh, that people are interested. What I always find ironic is that each year, it's like they ask the same question again as though this is the first time they've asked it, uh, and as though an answer hasn't already been given. Uh, it's like it's brand new each year. Well, let's find the historical Jesus again. Um, they need to come up with better questions, um, but that's just what it is. But, but if you can get past that, um, what, something that's interesting to consider is that just as the average secular uh, seeking person is looking back into history and asking the question, who was this Jesus? What's interesting to consider is that from the day that sin entered into the world and God's promise of a rescuer was said to be coming, until the day Jesus came, many people were asking the very same question. The only difference was is that they were looking ahead. They weren't looking back in history. They were looking ahead and saying, what will this coming rescuer be like? And although throughout the Old Testament, what you see are, are beautiful, progressive revelations, as we saw last week, all kinds of teaser trailers pointing ahead to this is what this revelation of the coming rescuer is going to look like, this, this seed of the woman that we promised in Genesis 3.15. That's going to crush the serpent's head. We're shown all these different pictures of what he's going to look like when he comes, who it is we should be looking for. One of the clearest and most, I think, stunningly beautiful pictures of that coming rescuer is found in a prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 6. Listen to what Isaiah says about this coming rescuer. For to us a child is born. We sang this this morning. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, that's not the only picture of the Messiah that we have in the book of Isaiah, but what it has particular relevance to is his coming, what his coming 
of that coming rescuer, which is going to look like. That's, that's what we celebrate each Christmas. He's saying, this is what the coming rescuer will look like. This is what you should be looking for. And coming, of course, Jesus' coming is what we celebrate every Advent season. Again, it's what we talked about this morning. That's why we call this the season of Advent and not just the season of Christmas. We're celebrating the arrival of that promised rescuer. He's come at last. And so when we went through this series back in 2016 called Isaiah's Jesus, what we did is we kind of zoomed in on each one of those five descriptions of the coming rescuer, uh, giving an idea of what Isaiah said he was going to look like, even though he was giving this prophecy about Jesus 700 years before he came. And the first description of, from Isaiah's prophecy of this rescuer, this Messiah, that God was going to send was that he would be a child. He would be a son. Again, Isaiah wrote it this way, for to us a child is born, a son is given, which very fortunately for me fits very perfectly into that second description in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 4 as we continue in our series now about in the fullness of time. Because there Paul writes, as we just read, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. Born of a woman, that's the second part of that Christmas according to Galatians that we're going to look at this morning. Now what we focused on last week, if you weren't here, were those first two parts in particular of verse 4. We talked about uh, how God's understanding of being on time is so different from our human finite understanding of that, as well as the fact that this baby, this son born in Bethlehem, truly was God's promised rescuer, that he was Emmanuel, he was God with us. But here, now, more than highlighting the fulfillment of, say, Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7, the child will be born to a virgin, or even highlighting uh, the promise in Genesis 3.15, that it will be a seed of the woman, what I think Paul is pointing to specifically in speaking of Jesus as born of a woman is that along with being fully God, he is also fully man. Born of a woman is speaking specifically to Jesus' humanity. So with Isaiah's description in that prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 about Jesus or the coming rescuer being a, a child or a son, I think once again it's highlighting Jesus' humanity. There are two things in particular I think Isaiah was trying to tell us about. First of all, what he was saying was that when, when this rescuer comes, you shouldn't be looking for some wise old sage with a long beard spouting you know, wise proverbs, uh, some superhero with tights and JC on his chest or something flying around. What you should be looking for when he comes is a baby. That's what he's going to look like when he first comes. He's saying he'll be a baby. And the second thing I think he's pointing out when, in, in his description of the Messiah as being a child and a son is that he's also trying to include a picture of Jesus' flesh and blood humanity. He's saying, when the Messiah comes, he'll be a person. Pretty simple stuff, and yet sometimes we fly over and we don't see that. He's saying, when, you, when that Messiah first comes, look for a baby. Don't look for a wise old sage, and look for a person. Now, of course, Jesus is much more than that, but neither is he less than that. There are allusions all through the Old Testament and then, of course, tons of pictures seen throughout the New Testament where we see Jesus as both fully God and fully man. Most noticeably, one of the passages that 
Kent read for us this morning from John chapter 1, which describes Jesus as the divine word, the logos, the pre-existent, co-eternal son, an agent of all creation, and absolutely human. The word, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, how is that possible? How, how can Jesus be both fully man and fully God at the same time? I have no idea. I have no idea how. Um, and and if, just to make you feel better, neither does anyone else. We, we've got some ideas about it, but nobody really knows how could he be both at the same time. But, of course, that hasn't stopped people over the years from still trying to decide how it is that that's happened, to come up with their own uh, ideas of how Jesus can be both. And sadly, what that's done over the years is... All throughout history, we see different heresies, different false teachings about Jesus that developed because they were trying to understand how we could be both. So, for example, in the day of the apostles, there was a Gnostic teaching called docetism. Docetism, which said that Jesus' body was simply a ghost. He was a, a phantom uh, that only appeared to suffer and die, but he didn't really suffer because he's God. How could God die? They were trying to understand how it worked. Uh, later in the 5th century, there was a teaching called Eutychianism or Monophysticism, which said that Jesus had only one nature. He wasn't either fully God or fully man. He was kind of a cosmic blender mix of both, uh, and we don't really know which one. It was just all mixed together. And, and so there, there weren't two natures, fully God, fully man. It was just one nature. Uh, the, that latter view uh, was what resulted in and what needed to result in a, a collection of uh, leaders of the church in Chalcedon in 451 AD to write up what is now known as the Chalcedonian uh, Confession or the Chalcedonian Creed, which affirms Jesus, quote, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided in two persons, but one and the same son, end quote. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of flowery, big language to say he's both. He's both at the same time. In one person, fully God, fully man at the same time. And maybe we'll never understand how he is. I don't know. But according to the scriptures, he is. Jesus is both fully God, fully man. So last week, where we focused in on the divinity of Jesus, the, the fully God side, this week we're going to focus in on his humanity, which is incredibly important for us to understand because grasping this truth helps us avoid some of those mistakes of the past where, where I think we could fall into the very same thing if we don't try to understand at least what the Bible teaches us about how we can be both. So think about just one example of how this could work out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been reading through the gospel accounts, for instance, and you've heard about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and you hear how, how he was 40 days uh, with no food or water. He's out in the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan, and he overcomes him. He doesn't give in to temptation, and we say, well, yeah, duh, it's Jesus. Of course he overcame. It's easy. I'd like to suggest to you that in doing that, you're actually denying the full humanity of Jesus. You're practicing a kind of functional docetism, thinking of Jesus like a divine superman who only appeared to suffer, but didn't really suffer. He, he only seemed to be tempted, but he wasn't really tempted. And beyond that, 
Grasping the humanity of Jesus also helps us answer the question, which I wonder how you'd answer if someone were to ask you this question today. Namely, why did Jesus have to come to earth as a flesh and blood human at all? What would you say to someone later on today if they say, hey, I heard about this Christmas and what's going on, and they asked you, why is the humanity of Jesus important? What would you say to them? Well, very helpfully, while the Bible doesn't answer the how question for us of being both fully God and fully man, this passage in Hebrews 2 does answer the why question. It answers why Jesus, who was fully God, also had to be made like his brothers in every way. And in order to help us all understand that together from this passage, I want to look at it in just two ways today. We're going to look at Jesus' practical humanity and then Jesus' theological humanity his practical and his theological humanity. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that Hebrews 2 passage? Follow along with me, and we'll dig into this together, looking at now Jesus, born of a woman. So let's look first of all at Jesus' practical humanity. Practical humanity. Now, I had an embarrassing experience uh, growing up as a child traveling in the United States. Um, I'm probably showing my age and sharing this story with you, but there was a time in the U.S. when you could pay for stuff with Canadian currency. You could still use Canadian dollars. They converted it still, but you could pay them in Canadian dollars, and they'd do the conversion at the till. Uh, much the way, the same way, you know, you can still use U.S. dollars up here, and they'll give you a terrible conversion rate, and it's great. But at some point in time, without informing me or consulting me, that changed. Uh, so, uh, one of our family trips we did every couple of years was drive down the Oregon coast. It was beautiful. We had relatives in California. We'd drive down to see them. Great kite flying on the Oregon coast, lots of big wind and stuff like that. So I went into the kite shop to, to buy this cool kite that I wanted to fly down on the beach. I put down my Canadian money, which I assumed was more than enough with the conversion rate to cover it, only to have the teller, uh, look at me, shake her head and push it back and say, no, 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 no. You can't pay with that. You, you can't pay with that. You're going to need to go to the bank, a, a currency exchange, something like that. Get it converted if you want to purchase this. Thanks very much, Mom and Dad, for telling me uh, that this was the new thing. Okay, look really quickly, first of all, here at verse 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. Here we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood... He, again, that's Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now here, the author of Hebrews is describing all humanity as being enslaved to the fear of death, which before the coming of Jesus, says, he says the devil holds the power to. So really, Satan is depicted here as holding humanity in a kind of captivity, very much the same way as Pharaoh would have held God's people in captivity in Egypt, which you read about in the book of Exodus. Now, in referring to those slaves and captives as children, the author of Hebrews is actually making a direct reference to God's people, to, to children of God, to Christians. But you notice he also makes the somewhat obvious point that those children have flesh and blood. Namely, they're, they're human beings. So in effect, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's setting up 
a trade agreement type of thing. He's saying the currency here in this world for purchasing slaves, for purchasing people who are enslaved in this country is flesh and blood. That's the currency in order to destroy the devil and free these slaves, these captives from the fear of death. Flesh and blood must be paid. But if you didn't already know, there's a problem here because God is a spirit. That's what Jesus says of himself very explicitly, John 4, 24. And before his incarnation, which is just a fancy theological word that describes when Jesus came to earth as a baby, took on human flesh. Before his incarnation, Jesus didn't have either of those things. He didn't have flesh or blood. And while flesh and blood can die, flesh and blood can be put to death, a spirit cannot die. So in the end, here's the answer. If you're filling in your chart, Bible Jeopardy for 200, the practical reason why Jesus must become human is here. So that he can die. That's the practical reason for Jesus' humanity, so that he can die, which I know, it's, it's like throwing a bucket of cold ice water on the Christmas fire by the tree. Uh, it seems like it's uh, a Christmas downer to say, he, this beautiful baby in, in, come into creation has come to die. And yet, that's exactly what the scriptures teach us. We must never forget or lose sight of the fact that Jesus came to earth, the reason he came at all, his expressed purpose was so that he could give his life as a payment for the sins of the world and destroy him who holds the power of death. And so we see it plainly, verse 14 as well as verse 17. In order for Jesus to die the death that destroys the devil as well as to make atonement for the sins of people, Jesus must share in our humanity. He must be made like his brothers in every way. The Word, as John says, John 1.14, must become flesh and blood. And why that matters so much for us still today is that it shows us one of the biggest reasons why Jesus, born of a woman, fully God and fully man, is so important. Because in a very real sense, for God to come as a ghost to come as a hologram, like in that docetic view. If he comes that way and, and, offers, and just sort of pretends to offer himself, if Jesus comes as a phantom and a ghost and sort of feigns uh, offering his body on a substitutionary death for the, on the cross for our sins, even God himself knew what I only discovered in that kite shop in Oregon. You can't pay with that. You can't pay with that a feigned substitutionary death. You need a real one. Jesus needed the right currency first with which to pay, which in this case was true humanity, true flesh and blood. But important parentheses and something really important for us to understand when we understand this language of Jesus paying to deliver us. It's essential when we talk about Jesus paying to deliver us, we also understand who it is that Jesus is paying who is he paying? Because, spoiler alert, it's not the devil. He, he's not paying the devil. There, there's a wrong understanding of our salvation that a lot of people hold to, even unknowingly, called a devil ransom theory of atonement. You see this actually uh, show up uh, in, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
this uh, scene where Aslan, who is the Christ figure, uh, gives his life as a payment to the witch in order so that Edmund can go free. Now, there's very true things that speak of uh, Jesus substitutes himself for us in order for us to go free. That's true. But he's not paying the witch. He's not substituting so that she can be paid off for Edmund to go free. That's not the Bible's understanding of how we are saved. It, it sounds really strange to, to say it out loud for our ears, but the reality is the only one that Jesus is paying by his death on the cross is himself. He's paying himself so that, as Romans 3 tells us, he can be both just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. God's righteous requirements require sin to be punished, but rather than punishing us himself, Jesus comes and makes the payment for us so that we don't have to pay it. And if you're any doubt of that, just read through to the end of verse 14. It shows us that rather than paying the devil off by his death on the cross, Jesus destroys him. Uh, that's a strange way to pay somebody off, to destroy them. I guess it makes the debt go away, but that's not what's happening. He pays himself so that we don't have to pay. The biblical teaching of salvation is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the ultimate point of his incarnation, are, what we are freed from is actually God's rightful and just wrath against sin, against us. That's what we're actually freed from. Jesus pays the debt in his flesh that we owed in ours so that we might go free where we should have died. And as we see in the book of Revelation, at the end of time, that same truth then becomes our continuous song of praise to Jesus. As we sing, Revelation 5 tells us, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Okay, so that's Jesus' practical humanity. In essence, showing us Jesus had to be truly made like his brothers in every way so that he could truly die in our place. But there's also a theological reason for Jesus' humanity. So let's look now at Jesus' theological humanity. Jesus' theological humanity. And what I mean by that term, theological humanity, is simply to say that in his becoming fully human... Jesus was also teaching us something very profound about the nature and character of God, what he's like. And it probably won't surprise anyone to hear that a lot of my understanding of how Jesus' humanity points to the nature and character of God has been grown by a lot of study from work that Tim Keller has done. I usually quote him every message anyway. So here again, we got Dr. Tim telling us some cool stuff. The first thing. The first thing Jesus' humanity teaches us about God is his intimate love and care for the pinnacle of his creation, namely, human beings made in his image. That's the first thing we see about God's character in Jesus taking on human flesh. And we know that that's true because of what we just looked at in the last point, that, that rather than simply looking down at our rebellion, at our helplessness, at, at, our, at our rejection of God and just either turning his back or destroying us and starting over again like he did in Noah's day, we see the God of the universe writing himself into his own story humbling himself in an unfathomable way in order to come and pay the debt that we could never pay on our own. That's what the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to describe, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, where he talks about uh, the, the humility of Jesus, 
humbling himself, becoming nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, humbling himself even further to being put to death on a cross, which was considered a cursed way to die. Do we see just how much God cares for humanity in Jesus taking on that same humanity upon himself so that he could die for us? But the other thing Jesus' humanity teaches us, and this is where Keller really grew my understanding of the humanity of Jesus, is that we also see in the humanity of Jesus, we see God's desire to redeem and restore humanity as well as all of his creation. Did you think about that? Where we see that specifically is in the resurrection of Jesus. In his resurrection, because if you know the gospel accounts well, you'll remember that when Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples, he goes to great lengths, all kinds of different ways, to show them that he's not a ghost. He's not an illusion, but still very much a living, albeit now risen and glorified, human being. Jesus' humanity, he's saying, was not a costume that he just put on for 30-something years and then now this is what we're really going to do. No, when he rises again, it's his same humanity, but now restored and glorified. Which is something that actually makes Christianity entirely different from any other religion or philosophy in the world. Because in Eastern philosophy or religions like Buddhism, for instance, matter is considered to be an illusion, something that we need to be progressively released from or, or woken up for, woken up from in order to experience our true spiritual reality. Or in Greek or Western thought, um, matter is considered less than or in some cases even evil. And so it's seen as something that needs to be shed or discarded, overcome in order to, for, to, for the, the spirit part of us, the true part of us to, to be free to live. And yet, in Jesus taking on humanity, and then, in his resurrection, redeeming and restoring humanity, rather than shedding it, he is showing us something radically different about the way God views all matter that he's created. What that means for us is that rather than being God's plan B, rather than being a, a temporary solution so that he could reveal his ultimate matter-free reality, in the humanity of Jesus, God is revealing his future intended plan for all of creation, including humanity. The resurrection of Jesus is a small but powerful signpost saying, this is what I'm going to do to everything. Our future is not of some disembodied, floating around heaven and spirits existence, but of new bodies that don't get sick anymore, that don't get tired, that don't die. Not an erased heavens and earth, but a new heaven and a new earth, now perfectly joined together for all time. Everything that you love about the world right now, only infinitely better and also permanently better. That's what the humanity of Jesus reveals to us. And we see this spectacular plan to renew all creation in places like Revelation 21. Where John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. If you look again at verse 17, along with destroying the devil and making atonement for our sin, we see that Jesus' humanity, we're told here, also makes him a merciful and faithful high priest. Now that has a lot more to do with another one of the descriptions of Jesus in Isaiah's prophecy, a a wonderful counselor. But in this context, I think the author of Hebrews is pointing us to the function of a high priest who would be that intermediator between God and man and the temple that as he would offer sacrifices for, uh, on behalf of their sins. He's showing us the functional role of a high priest. I think that's really what he's highlighting there, which means that one further benefit of Jesus' humanity, at least that we see in this passage, is that now in being able to offer himself as an ultimate sacrifice for all time, Jesus becomes in his humanity both our high priest as well as the atoning sacrifice being offered at the same time. He becomes both. Something I think you see even more clearly just a few chapters later in Hebrews chapter 10. Speaking of that same functional role of the high priest, the author of Hebrews writes this, listen. He says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, uh, uh, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would have not stopped being offered, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying you can't pay with that. You can't pay with that. He goes on, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Do you see it now? You see how essential Isaiah's vision of Jesus as the child and the son, Paul's description of Jesus being born of a woman, do you see how essential that is? Do you think maybe you could answer someone a little better if they were to ask you later today, why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Do you see even a bit of just how much hangs on Jesus being fully God and fully man? When it comes to the birth of a child, everyone who's ever experienced that or been a part of that experience knows what it means when the time comes for the baby to be born. It's time. And your wife says, it's time. The doctor says, it's time to push now. Whatever it is, everyone understands what that means. It's time. But we also know it's a completely amorphous, can't grab it kind of thing. Yeah, we have due dates. We say, oh, the baby's coming now. But even then, we know babies, it's going to come unexpectedly. It's going to come when the baby comes. 
Last week we saw how the Son, Jesus, coming as God's promised rescuer happened exactly on time, according to God's perfect timing. Today, we learned that the way the coming of Jesus needed to happen was as a flesh and blood human child. That was God's perfect timing and plan. That's the way it needed to happen. And we'll look much more deeply in the next two weeks as to why this child, fully God and fully man, came when and how he did. But what I pray you've seen today is that Jesus' humanity is equally as important as his divinity. And it means everything for both our present salvation as well as the future restoration of our bodies, which is great news, actually. Hopeful news and encouraging news for us, whether you're currently suffering with disease, or physical handicap of some kind, an addiction of some kind, or if you're perfectly healthy and established in life. Because it means that the restoration that's coming means that even everything that's awesome about the world right now is also going to be renewed and better. So it's hope wherever you sit this morning. In 1 John 3, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Which means we have hope now. We have hope now in this life because of what Jesus accomplished for us in his humanity, freeing us as his children from the tyranny of death in his first coming, in his first advent. But it also leaves us with a future hope. A future hope that because Jesus was made like his brothers in every way, because he was born of a woman and made like his brothers in every way, one day when we see him face to face, we'll be made like him in every way. An infinitely better existence. Amen.